Professor Cassandra Serke is the author of Secrets of Women's Health Aging, Living Better, also principal investigator of the Women's Health Aging Project, which is the longest ongoing study of women's health in Australia. Cassandra, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Cassandra, firstly, tell us about the project and how it was set up and why it was set up. Oh, well, look, the project was initially thought about in the 80s, in the 1980s, and it was initially set up really around the menstrual transition. And this was because one of the lead investigators was actually doing a lot of work in women's health, and she was a psychiatrist, and getting a lot of referrals for these symptoms that kind of happened at midlife. And really, the project was set up with her, an endocrinologist, Henry Berger, to look at the actual hormones and physical things that happened around menopause. Um, And really it was pivotal in proving those endocrinological transitions and showing that it was a real thing. How did it develop then from there? Well, initially, these wonderful women who took part in the study back in 1990, which was the first time they were contacted, they were asked, would you please participate in a five-year study that will follow you across the transition? Well, of course, it didn't take five years, Trevor. That was (laughs) one of the first things they found out. Five years later, people were still transitioning. So, you know, that's how it kind of went from five years to 10 and then 15 and now 30. Did it then move on to other issues as far as women's health is concerned? Because I would presume if you're going to follow a group of women for that period of time, that you would then start to find that there are other issues as far as women's health was concerned? Look, absolutely. And, you know, there's something interesting to say about this study and why it was so important. You know, the mean age of death in the turn of the century, 1900s, was 50. The mean age of menopause is 50. So, in fact, if you look from, you know, 1900 to, 20, you know, 2000, you know, women were dying not so long after their menstrual transition. If you look today, women are living a third of their lives in the postmenopause. So, really, as this project's been going, it's been groundbreaking in providing information about a period of time that, frankly, we don't have the knowledge about like we do about other medical conditions. Why is it we don't have as much knowledge as we should? I understand that this research project has been going for a long time, so you're able to get more information. But why do you think it is we don't have more information for women's health in this period of time? Well, look, there's a few reasons for that. So, first of all, To get funded in research, really, funding cycles used to be three years. And, you know, God bless, about five years ago, they changed the funding cycles to five years, five years of funding. Wow. So, you know, if you have a study, it goes for three years or five years. If you, even today, if you wanted a study to run for longer than five years, number one, you'd have to get one of the coveted NHMRC funding, um, which is five years, whereas some fundings are only one year. Um, And then you'd have to be getting numerous of these. So often studies unfortunately lapse. And then the second thing is people. So, you know, in America, the retention rate in a five-year study is about half. So after five years, half the people have left the study. 
Whereas, you know, I think we got a 50% retention rate in the 28th year of our study. Wow. So, you know, Australians are fantastic. And, you know, they, they stuck with us um, in giving knowledge and information to improve the lives of people. And that's really important. And, you know, Nordic countries, in the, you know, internationally speaking, Nordic countries, they also have these high retention rates. And see, one of the things about ageing is um, ageing is a time where you have diseases develop that are what we call chronic diseases. In fact, the World Health Organization says that the, you know, this is before COVID came and took us all by surprise. Um, but WHO had said chronic diseases are going to be the big challenge of our next age globally. Globally, Chronic diseases are diseases you get when you're older. Now, these by definition, they don't happen overnight. They don't happen in a couple of years. These are diseases like heart disease, dementia, stroke, airways disease. They, they take decades decades to occur. Dementia, in fact, takes three decades to evolve. So if you're not looking at people over three decades, you can't possibly have the best intervention plan to prevent that disease. Isn't it interesting, as you say, heart disease, dementia and stroke, automatically what comes to mind for me is men's health. Is it something that we don't look at enough with women's health? Look, this is so true. Unfortunately, you know, I'm a neurologist and I get up and uh, at a conference on women's health and I start speaking and a slide of the brain pops up and, you know, people are like, what? What's she talking about? Yeah. Um, whereas, in fact, the leading cause of death in women in our country for some time now has been dementia. Leading cause of death in Australian women, also UK women. Second lead of cause of death for women is heart disease. Um, the Australian Catholic University actually released a report just a few years ago, um, and it showed that women have more heart disease than men. Um, now, women are less likely to get those heart attacks, um, which kind of stop you in your tracks and can kill you. Um, however, when you include ischemic heart disease and heart failure from ischemic heart disease, women have more heart disease than men. Women tend to get the kind of heart disease that's called small vessel disease, and um, it can give you mini heart attacks, but your heart doesn't actually stop. And then they get these kind of flaccid hearts that don't pump as well as they should. What were the major outcomes from, or so far, from the research that you've done? Oh, well, there were just so many. You know, there have been more than 200 research publications, let alone the book chapters and other things that have been done wow. through the study. Um, and so really, this was a time at 30 years that we thought we'd pull together all of that information as best we could and put it into a book for people to read. So, you know, there's been so many things that have been looked at. And really what I focused on in this book was really how we can have a better ageing because that's one of the things that we're facing with older populations. And this suggestion that ageing is disease <laughs> and disability, whereas in fact, you know, I think we have to disconnect ageing, which is um, how clever we are really, how experienced we are, how wonderful we are, how much, um, how many years we've spent on the planet learning, and that's one part of ageing. And then the second part, which people kind of link too closely to ageing, is the, our exposure to risk factors. So the longer you smoke, the higher your chance of lung cancer, for example. So, you know, when we look at ageing, sometimes what we're looking at is a measure of how long our bodies have been exposed to a risk factor that causes chronic disease. And if we disconnect those two, that's why you see happy, healthy, older ages. There's a lot of those things come down to mental state of mind, um, diet, a lot of those things that we associate just with general ageing and to being able to be healthier in general ageing. And how is it different for women? 
Yep, so uh, two-part question. So yeah. the first part, I'm going to quote the World Health Organization again. The World Health Organization stated that globally 80% of chronic diseases were preventable, and that's just by lifestyle implementation. 80% preventable. Then the second part is how are women different from men? You know, and they are. So I, I said that the leading cause of death in Australian women is dementia. The leading cause of death in Australian men is heart disease. You know, so there's just different diseases and not just that. If you look at heart disease in women and men, they're totally different sort of diseases. So in men you have this large vessel heart disease predominantly. Women do get that too, but predominantly it's large vessel heart disease. That's the sort of heart disease that's treated really well um, by reducing high cholesterol. It's the sort of disease that um, if you get a big blockage and catch it in time, you can bypass it with bypass surgery. The sort of heart disease women get, this small vessel heart disease, because all of the little tiny small vessels are affected, it, you can't bypass um, any one large blockage. And so the, the whole treatment and management, um, and I always refer to Harvard uh, Medical School because they have a great website where they show that, you know, the symptoms, the signs, the treatment, the management of heart disease in women is entirely different to the recommendations in men. Is that focused on enough, the, the differences both with dementia and what you're talking about with heart disease, and I presume it's the same with stroke, is that we tend to label things and lump it all in together as far as this is what you need to do as far as diet's concerned, this is what you need to do as far as exercise is concerned instead of looking at them separately? Well, look, that's totally true. So, you know, one of the things is sex differences, differences in treatments, differences in diseases have only been recently looked at in the last decade. And to be honest, uh, we just published a paper actually looking in dementia, seeing um, how many women were included in trials. Now, globally, of all the people with dementia around the world, two-thirds of those people living with dementia are women. Yet when you look at the trials and the research that it's not two-thirds of women in the research, which which is odd because if you have two-thirds of people with disease, you see two-thirds of people in the research. And, you know, we're clinical trials, um, so we have a drug that's already um, known to work and we're testing it. Their women are better represented, but when looking at new drugs to, to impact disease, they're really underrepresented than, than you'd expect. So there is this issue, and, you know, going back, women were actually excluded from clinical trials and that was to protect the fetus. So sometimes I think we forget how much we've learned in just, you know, a couple of decades. Um, and, you know, going back, um, I think it was in the 2000s, in the late 90s, they identified, oh my gosh, there's no women in clinical trials and it looks like there's big differences and we're making mistakes. So it was only in the late 90s that it was identified. Then the um, American uh, FDA um, actually suggested that all clinical trials should look at um, having a 50-50 split, men, women. Uh, they did an audit and they found no one was following that advice, so that's when they made a mandate. And then since the mandate, we've had actually quite good 50-50 representation um, in clinical trials. But, I mean, that's only 20-ish years, you know, 20, 30 years of knowledge compared to hundreds of years um, of clinical trial research um, in men. And then the second thing is a lot of the drugs that we use today, of course, they all come from animal studies. And it was only in 2015, so, I mean, that's, that's really recently, that it was mandated that female animals had to be used in these clinical trials. So we've really only got... Uh, 
tiny, tiny amount of information on how those um, drug dosages and metabolisms work in um, female animals compared to male to lead on then to our treatment. So we really know so, so little about this area. Amy joins us. Hello, Amy. Hello. How are you, Trevor? Good, thank you, Amy. I think I'm coming from a different a different direction in a sense. Mm. Way back in 1995, uh, we were living in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast, which was a different name in those days. And uh, it, it was more or less what your life was like. Mm. Uh, there was nothing in particular that was pointed out as to whether at heart or what, what the lady is talking about now. And then eventually we moved south to Victoria and now you're in a certain age. I was born in 1925. My group is 1921 to 1926. This was some research that was done in women's health. Yes, it is women's health in, mm. in a sense. And it's done through, I think, the Newcastle University and also the other one, I have a relation actually who is looking after that in Perth and that is done through the university in Perth. Amy, can I just ask you what things they were looking at within that research? It seemed to be your, your way you lived and you had to answer various questions, you know, whether you're going upstairs or downstairs, a very different thing. There was nothing pointed out as to what your health was like, but I guess in some ways you did, did describe as to what was happening to you. Amy, thank you. I'll just go back to Cassandra with that. So that conversation, because research taking a look at life and how you actually live your life and how that affects you physically as well, I guess, would be pivotal and important as well. It is so important. And look, one of the things that made our study quite um, interesting internationally was we asked those things about how people lived, their quality of life, exactly um, about how they were moving and how they were functioning, as well as taking blood tests and doing cholesterol measures and doing neuropsychological um, evaluations of cognition and mood and anxiety and bringing people in and even doing bone scans and brain scans. So linking those two together, you know, the kind of cholesterol levels and those sort of measures and blood pressure measures with the way people were living has actually nutted out some really, really interesting things that have gone global. So, for example, grandparenting. And, you know, I love using this example because it's not something we thought of. Mm. <laughs> it was actually the participants of our study who said, why aren't you asking me about my grandchildren? Um, and so we started asking them about their grandchildren. And, you know, we actually found that women who were looking after their grandchildren ended up having better cognition a decade later than women who weren't, unless they were looking after their grandchildren full-time, in which case, actually, their cognition was lower. And, uh, of course, we looked at this more carefully and found that, you know, where there was stress and pressures on these women, not from their grandchildren, it was actually from their children, yeah. <laughs> they, they were actually finding things difficult. So, you know, that sort of research, which is so important, um, it needs to connect to what people are doing and having those neuropsychological evaluations, we had brain scans and blood measures alongside what people are doing is really the key to healthy living. And that's a good example of why you need to have such a long study, because if you were to do that over five years or 10 years, then you wouldn't pick those things up because they may not be grandparents yet. That's right. 
And also one of the great things about our study is things like mood. Looking at mood in older people, a lot of studies say that older people have more depression. And they say, well, of course, older people have more depression because they have more loss and they're unwell. Well, in our study, we took the women who'd come every single time over the decades. So that's um, kind of selecting out people who might stop coming into a study because they have low mood. And therefore, we were able to look at their mood from 45 through to 75. And looking at that, we actually saw that they got better able to cope with all the things that cause negative mood in life. They were actually less likely to be depressed when they were older compared to when they were younger, despite, of course, going through all the sorts of things that you'd expect with ageing, loss of partnerships, loss of people, um, illness in themselves or caring for people with illness. They had these burdens that you expect over time, but they became more resilient and, and actually cultivated a positive mood that offset those negative moods. With- so. Um, so it's actually really important to look over time because you really want to correct for people who might have had depression when they're younger, which we know, of course, makes you more likely to have depression when you're older. Our guest this morning is Professor Cassandra Serke, who's the author of Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging, Living Better. Cassandra, we're taking a look at women's health. Why is it important that men are also aware of what the issues are as far as women's health is concerned? Oh, look, I think it's important that men and women are aware of each other's health because, you know, we can't um, get healthier without helping each other to some extent. So some of the things that are feature in women's health are the fact that, you know, women don't tend to focus on their health and they tend to focus on the health of others and then sometimes neglect their own risk factors. So, you know, for example, we all know the guidelines that we should, um, you know, have healthy weights, we should be eating healthy, we should be exercising. Um, When you actually look at... I hate to say compliance with guidelines, but, you know, that's what we looked at. So, so we did this big survey in more than 20,000 women across Australia. Um, and it was, you know, shocking to me um, to see that uh, less than half um, the women had uh, a healthy body mass index. Um, less than 30% of women were getting enough activity to keep them healthy. Less than 20% of women were actually eating enough uh, fruit and vegetables, and less than 15% in our beautiful Australian island were getting enough fish and and legumes. So, you know, it it really was quite shocking to me until I thought, well, hang on, do I do those things? (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, and interestingly, if you look at their children or their husbands, they actually are really focused on, um, you know, health of people they're providing care for. But, you know, they tend to downplay that. And then if you look at men's health, one of the things um, I looked at, of course, because with women, um, you know, having more heart disease and more dementia, and, um, you know, well, what's going on in men? Because, um, you know, men tend to die um, on average. I think in our country it's four years younger than women. Um, and so looking at, well, hang on, what's going on? And, you know, in men, suicide is a real risk. And not just in young men, but in the older cohort of men too. So, you know, talk about preventable deaths. I'm, I'm big in public health. I, preventable deaths my thing. And, you know, suicide is clearly a highly preventable death. So, you know, it's just different, different diseases affect people differently. And knowing about what it is allows you to target it and prevent it. Uh, Moya, hello. Hello, good morning. Um, I took part of a, a five-year study of women, and a longitudinal study of women and ageing um, in Queensland um, some years ago. 
um, and it was just the best thing ever. I had so many tests, that everything, and cognition, um, physical tests, and it, it was really helpful. I, well, I think it, the study must have been quite helpful for, for the University of Queensland, and I know that it was just voluntary. I just, I think it was a wonderful thing for, for for women. Moya, what did you get out of it personally? I think it was just interesting to have all those tests to know that I was actually fairly good for my age and but the cognition things were really interesting. Uh, um, it was just somebody taking an interest actually in, in, in how you progressed as you aged because it was over five years. Cassandra, do you want to ask Moya anything? Yeah, well, you know what, Moira, I, I love hearing what you have to say because I think what's interesting about studies like this is um, people who stay in the study actually end up healthier. And this is a phenomenon that's talked about worldwide because, you know, in a pure sense, it biases the research because healthier people are in it. So there is actually data show when people are in the studies, they end up healthier. And, you know, people have been saying it's because obviously in the study you often get told if, um, so, you know, in our study, we did vitamin D levels for the women. And of course, anyone who was low, we shared that with their GPs and the women. And I tell you, five years later we redid the vitamin D levels and when we first did them there was a huge proportion of people who were vitamin D deficient and when we did it a couple of years later everyone was uh, perfectly normal and I thought oh dear you know I meant to be an observational study just just observing but you know clearly we had an influence and so I think there is um, that kind of synergy and interaction but you know also I think you know the things you shared I wanted to ask you, what did you share outside the questions they're asking you? Because in our study, we really found women shared a little bit more. Well, actually, we, we actually had physical examinations. Mm. We, we used to spend at least an hour, maybe two hours there. And, but this thing, we, we had bone density tests, we had skin tests, it, the whole gamut of the body. And I just thought, you know, you don't get that. And GPs don't have the time to do those sort of things. And it was just... I, I think I, I, it made me look after my body a lot better. Moya, did you pass on it, did, um, your advice to other people? Oh, yeah, I did. I mean, what I gained, but I mean, I think there were about 500 women involved in the study. Moya, thank you, because the passing on of information is significant and important in a lot of ways, Cassandra. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I should have said the lady who called before talking about being from the 1921 to 1926 cohort, there's a really big study that started about four years after ours called the Australian Longitudinal Women's Study, um, and they took birth cohorts. Um, so that's a questionnaire-based study. So I reckon that's what she was talking about. And I'm so sorry to hear that Morris' study didn't get funded after the five years because, you know... I wish we were national and would be doing this for everyone everywhere. Can you talk a little bit more about dementia and the effects that dementia has on women, given that it is the leading cause of death? Well, you know, the thing about dementia is I want to say that um, there's a number of people living with dementia and um, you can live with dementia well. So that's the first thing I want to say. However, I, I have to be honest that dementia is a um, terminal disease. So it's a terminal disease and um, it is really a disease that affects obviously the individual, but there's a loss of the individual because uh, with the brain cell changes, so um, dementia, um, the features, uh, depends what kind of dementia you have, but ultimately with all dementias, you're losing brain cells. And so there is a loss of self because, you know, where we are, I guess, is kind of nested in our brain. And so, you know, when you talk to families um, 
you know, there's a loss. They feel a loss of that individual as well. So, you know, dementia is one of these really difficult diseases. It doesn't involve just an individual. It involves a whole community. And um, the thing is, if you look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and you look at all the diseases, um, you know, it's a real sort of a success story in that if you look across, since we started first doing the Australia um, Health Report, which is done annually, um, cardiovascular disease deaths are on the decline. Um, deaths from stroke are on the decline. Um, deaths from airways disease um, were on the decline when we got rid of smoking and now they've kind of stabilised, trending downwards. There is only one disease death, and you know, even deaths from cancer are declining. Um, there is one disease on that list that has been increasing each and every year, and that's dementia. And thus, there needs to be more research. I just wanted to, just because I was really interested to see the importance of vitamin D, and especially as far as brain health is concerned. Yeah, so look, you know, vitamin D, we always knew was very important for um, bone health. For a long time, we've known that it's really important for bones. Calcium is important, but without vitamin D, your body doesn't use the calcium the right way. So you really need both calcium and vitamin D. And the thing is, we tend to get calcium in our diets. Um, vitamin D, I mean, look, it's in trace amounts in your diet, but predominantly vitamin D is obtained through sunshine. So the sun touches your skin, a reaction occurs in the skin, and that converts um, to give you vitamin D. Now, um, around the world, they started noticing that um, in the neurology space, which is, of course, my space, um, that neurodegenerative diseases were more common in places that had less sunshine. So, you know, things like multiple sclerosis, you know, they were looking across and said, well, gosh, maybe vitamin D's got a big impact here. And so there were these studies showing that people um, who had low vitamin D were much more likely to get multiple sclerosis. And then they started doing studies, of course, supplementing vitamin D tablets and seeing if there was um, benefits on that. And in fact, taking tablets was not as beneficial as you would expect. It's good for bone health, but not as beneficial. So they think now that it's something to do with that um, reaction that occurs in the skin converting um, to the active form of vitamin D that we use in the body that maybe is having a bit of an anti-inflammatory effect and so the low vitamin D levels are causing an inflammatory state and maybe that's why the brain is reacting so badly um, to that. But, you know, in Australia we have to be sun smart. There's yeah. no question about that. Um, and interestingly, uh, that's a suggestion as to why we see actually quite high levels of vitamin D deficiency in Australia um, because sunscreen can actually stop that um, reaction from happening. But Having said that, you can be completely sun smart and still get your vitamin D. It really only takes 10 minutes of a forearm in the sun each day to get your vitamin D. And, you know, that won't cause um, um, problems. And the reason I say forearm is because, you know, if we have any changes in the skin, it's easy to check. <laughs> so as you know, with skin cancer, you know, vigilance and checking for any changes is really important because if you catch it early, it's curable entirely. Um, and as I said, you know, we're not talking about sun baking by any means. Um, forearms in the sun, 10 minutes, and, you know, not during those peak UV periods in the day is more than enough to get you your vitamin D. Bung your arms out in the sun for 10 bucks <laughs> and all is good. Um, Anthony, hello. Morning, guys. Um, my mother is 80 years of age and she pretty much got hit with the whoop of the stick, I think, of um, medical. When she was born, she's had breast cancer, bowel cancer, skin cancer. 
um, glaucoma, Fallon de Bray, and now she's got dementia. Um, something that's really important, I think, is just finding that right GP. And he, it's taken some time that he's got her on a medication now where she spends most of her time in bed asleep. But when she is up the last two years, her mood has been incredibly beautiful compared to where it was. Anthony, I'm going to go because there's seven minutes to go, but it's a wonderful thing that you bring to us, and especially what you're saying is that idea of early diagnosis or diagnosis from a good doctor. Look, I think Anthony raises a really important point he's just made there when he talks about his mum. Do you know that in Australia, if you're over the age of 50, it turns out 80% of us, um, I mean, you either have no diseases, but very few people have one disease. Over 50, if you have a disease, you have several diseases. You know, we term this multimorbidity. But, you know, as he just described with mum, you know, people over 50 have several diseases if they have disease. And these diseases interact with each other. And so, you know, spot on, getting a really good doctor who can um, look at those interactions is so important for guidance. Because, you know, nowadays there's so much information available to us. But I tell you what, you know, there'll be information for dementia, information for heart disease. I once had a, a patient actually come to me, having, of course, Googled and known all about their stuff. They were seeing me because of risk of dementia. And they actually asked me a question that has stuck with me my whole life. They said to me, um, look, what I want to know from you, because I always ask them what, what they want, uh, what I want to know from you is, um, is it better to get diabetes or dementia? And the reason they asked me this was the websites were conflicting. The person had diabetes, and so they had to have regular meals um, with, of course, their um, medications, yet the dementia website was telling them to graze through the day and eat dark chocolate. And so they, were, they felt conflicted that uh, they had to choose um, one disease or the other. And that was what they were asking. Whereas, you know, we really have to better integrate our health information because, you know, once you're over 50, you're not treating one organ or one disease. You're treating the whole body. Yasim, good morning. Hi. Yes, oh, yeah, I was just going to say to the professor that, that did the study and she mentioned that older people um, live longer when they have their grandchildren around them. Well, I used to be a dementia nurse since I was about 20 and um, I did, my grandmother lived till 101, but she had her grandchildren, well, she had me around her every day and I used to tell her all my problems and everything, you know how people say don't tell old people, don't worry them, you know, it's bad for their heart, but I actually thought it was good for my grandma because... She lived till 101. She was completely cognitive um, and she never got dementia. Um, so that when the lady said her study picked that up about older people with grandchildren, yeah, I, I, said, I was going to say I agree with that. What a lovely Thanks granddaughter. Thanks so much for darling and telling us that story. Do you know, there's that thing they used to say, right? If you don't use it, you lose it. And that is so, so true. And one thing we probably don't do great in Western societies is... Um, keeping people integrated. Um, there is this kind of segregation of older people um, and, you know, integration and people living in communities is so important for their health. And, you know, one of the biggest problems we've got in ageing communities in, in our society is loneliness. You know, loneliness is not trivial. It's something that... Um, makes people more likely to die in the next five years. It gives people a higher risk of diseases. When we test their bloodstream, we can see increase in stress, 
hormones in their blood. We see a depressed immune system, which makes them more likely to get infections, you know, and also their sleep's disturbed, which leads to all sorts of diseases. So, you know, it's a real phenomenon and um, it's something we need to address. So maybe it's not a coincidence that there's a correlation between possible the length of time that people live and also multi-generational families. Um, look, absolutely true. And look, the other thing is, you know, retirement's an interesting uh, concept. And, um, you know, the use it or lose it phenomenon, um, there has been studies showing that after retirement, when people aren't using skills, and look, let's face it, when we send astronauts, young, healthy, fit, predominantly men, um, up into space, you know, when they're there for several months, they come back with space flight osteopenia. Their bones actually become less dense because up where you're weightless, you know, if you... If the body doesn't need it, it doesn't have it. It's, it's a wonderful thing about our bodies because we adapt to whatever the environment needs. By the same token, um, you know, when people aren't using their skills, they start losing their skills. And, you know, there was this great program in Japan where they did a return to work for people who are older. And it was a return to work scheme. They didn't go to work full time. They had adjusted hours. They had adjusted duties. So there wasn't that stress element of work. Um, but they were still engaging. And that study has shown really great outcomes. So keeping engaged is really important. Just on that stress element, is there a difference in the way that stress affects women? And I guess that stress and distress affects women in comparison to men? Well, look, I think what's important for men and women is not allowing stress to flick into distress. So, you know, some of the interesting work really across the world shows we know that stress isn't good for us. But interestingly, you know, some people go through enormous amounts of stress, unheard of, you know, through wars, through famine, through, through all the sorts of things that occur, and yet they're healthy. And other people might have, you know, what you might judge as lesser stresses and they become unhealthy. What it's about is not letting that stress flick into distress for you. And that's a number of things. I talked already about that positive mood that can kind of offset negative mood, but also it's about support. So, you know, having support so that you, you know, have the chance to change the circumstance you're in is really important. And that's something we should be focusing on for everyone. Cassandra, there is so much more that we could talk about. We haven't even covered diet. There are so many more things that we could take a look at as far as physical health is concerned. Hopefully, we might be able to get you to come up early Oh, I love it. I love getting up at this time in the morning. It's been really fun. <laughs> Good stuff. We'll get you back to take a look at diet and physical health and also a little bit more on menopause as well. Oh, I'd love to do that. Good on you. Thank you. That's uh, Professor Cassandra Soke, who's the author of Secrets of Women's Health, Aging and Living Better.